Do turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. On the run-up to Christmas, something very unusual happened in the United Kingdom, because I wasn't there. Uh, the Prime Minister addressed in the national newspapers publicly, he addressed a criticism uh, to the Archbishop of Canterbury and other clergy in, in the United Kingdom, specifically for failing to stand up for Christianity. It was the most unusual thing. No one had ever heard of this for such a long time. Christianity has not been mentioned in the public arena by politicians ever since Tony Blair famously said, we don't do God. And it was unusual in not only the target, the target was the church, the target were, was the leadership of the national church, and the subtext of his criticism was that religious toleration in the United Kingdom applies to everybody except Christians. That anybody and everybody is allowed to have the public square, but Christians aren't. And he was asking the question why it was that those who are Christians, those who are the spokesmen for Christianity in the country, were not speaking up, both for Christian dogma and for Christian values. Uh, that led me to wonder, why is it? Why is it that in the United Kingdom, and, and I guess to some degree in the United States, the, uh, the public persona of Christianity particularly is muted, to say the least. And I think there are a number of reasons for that, and we could explore a lot of them, but I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons that Christianity is singled out as being dangerous is because it is a converting religion. It is a converting religion. People are scared. They're scared to get converted. They've heard the horror stories of people who started reading Christian books and suddenly they stop being atheistic and they become Christian. They've heard horror stories of naturalistic scientists, for example, who've become persuaded that, that uh, there is a designer behind what they see. There's a fear. There's a fear of the converting work that Christianity does. And I suppose one of the stories that is most familiar even to unchurched people, although they only know it by way of some allusions in the story, is the story of this man, Saul. Because even unchurched people have heard the expression, a Damascus Road experience. And this is where it begins. This is the only Damascus Road experience actually there's ever been. This is it. This is where it all comes from. Now the book of Acts records a number of key moments in the life of the apostolic church that are defining of the church's future. The conversion of Saul is one of these. It stands out. It stands alongside one or two other events in importance. And the importance that Luke ascribes to it is highlighted in the text of Acts by the multiple references to these events. So, for example, Pentecost. Pentecost is referred to, as you find in the Old Testament, uh, creation is referred to over and over again, and, and uh, the Ten Commandments are referred to over and over again. Here in, in the New Testament, Pentecost is promised, 
and then it's reported, and then it's remembered. The conversion of Cornelius, that's still to come in the story. He's the first great figure from the Gentile world to be converted. His conversion is reported. It's remembered. It's retold by Peter. It's recalled later in the story. And so the conversion of Saul of Tarsus receives three reports throughout the book of Acts. And I think the lesson we have to bear in mind as we come to it is that what the Bible chooses to repeat it wants us to take seriously. And this is one of those stories. So what is the story about? Well, there are three aspects that I want to highlight this evening. First of all, a hostile confronted, a prophet called, and a brother comforted. First of all, a hostile confronted. There's absolutely no doubt of the sheer murderous hostility that drove Saul's persecution of the church. Later on, he would confess uh, to his ancestral traditions and the righteousness that he inherited through keeping the law of Moses that propelled him to attack the church. He saw his Judaism threatened by the church. He saw the law of Moses with its, with its rules and regulations threatened by the Christian message. He saw the customs that had been handed down, those boundary markers that, that often identified what a Jew was. He saw them under threat by the Christian movement. He saw the Christian movement and his Judaic inheritance in a collision course. And he was a representative of that Jewish heritage. He was the man who had been appointed to care for her and to care for its well-being. And so Saul was introduced to us earlier at the death of Stephen, consenting to the violence involved in Stephen's death, breathing out murders and threats against the church of God. Chapter 8, verse 3, Paul or Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged men and women off and committed them into prison. So he's serious. Then in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we're told that he was breathing threats. It was as if persecution was the air he breathed. He is obsessed with this business of rooting out Christianity altogether and putting an end to it once and for all. So by the time we come to chapter 9, we find him with letters from the high priest to the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus in Syria, asking them to assist Saul in the extradition of anybody associated with the movement known as the Way. This stage, Christianity is known as the Way. Christians are the followers of the Way. A number of suggestions as to where that comes from. My, my own is that it's from Isaiah and from the Old Testament. The whole idea of those Old Testament references of the coming of the Messiah the way of the Lord, opening up the way of the Lord, leading us in the way of the Lord, the way that leads to life, the way of Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. He wants to eradicate the way. Now you know that silly claim that people sometimes make, that Christianity is for the weak, for those in the grip of self-doubt or self-pity or, or, or whatever. The interesting thing is that when you come to across this man's soul here. There is nothing in the story so far and nothing in the story that follows that suggests that here was a man who was being prepared psychologically or emotionally or spiritually for this great 
intervention that we're going to read about here. There's no suggestion anywhere in the text that this was a man, for example, who was burdened by guilt or by sin in any way. In fact, his own testimony is that he was acting in full conviction of his, the rightness of what he was doing and his own righteousness in what he was doing. He was absolutely convinced that he was serving God and that he was doing the right thing. You can read his account in Galatians 1, for example, where he says this, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So here he was. He is a man who is totally focused, and it's in the full flood of his anger, in the midst of his determination to get rid of these people, that suddenly, suddenly, the text emphasizes this. As he's going to Damascus, he is suddenly, verse 3, confronted, arrested in midstream. Suddenly, a light flashes from heaven, and we find Saul flattened to the ground. Now, this, this event that we read about here, we need to use a bit of our imagination here. We, we need to stress to ourselves as we read the story, this is no metaphorical description of what occurs. This is an account of something, an event of massive significance. This is an event which in biblical terms stands alongside other similar events which you find recorded in the Old Testament especially where prophets were called to serve the word and work of God. And other passages where Paul talks about it, for example, especially chapter 26 of Acts, make this even clearer. Now, what are the components of this confrontation? Let's break them down for a moment. First of all, there's the light. Let's call it a glory light, because that is in fact what it will eventually appear to be. So verse 3 says this, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Later on, he elaborates this when he's talking to King Agrippa. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. So the words light shining, the words that he uses there, come straight out of Isaiah chapter 60 where the light is God's light, not just for Jerusalem, but also for the kings and the Gentiles. That's why he's using that phrase as he speaks to King Agrippa later on in chapter 26. And there in Isaiah, the light is associated with the glory of the Lord. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And this association of light and glory has been there throughout the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, or Luke 1, volume 1, the book we call Luke, and now Luke volume 2, the book we call Acts. This idea of the light and the glory are associated throughout his work. Because the shepherds, you'll remember, when the angels appear to them, they see a sign, a light in the sky, and the glory of the Lord surrounds them. The glory of the Lord was all around them, we're told just as the glory is all around these people who are journeying with Saul on the road to, to Damascus. And uh, later on, Luke records that 
when the baby Jesus is taken into the temple and he's handed to Simeon, a, a holy and righteous man, and he's holding the baby, the man confesses, prophesying at that moment, my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. The light and the glory go together. So the phrase that's used here, the phrase the phraseology that's used comes from Isaiah 60, it comes from Isaiah 49, where somebody there, the servant of the Lord, is identified as the new Israel who will save Israel from her sins. And uh, he is given a covenant for the race. And uh, these words are spoken to him. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the light here is the glory light of God. And the light shines in the context of the biblical understanding because people walk in darkness. This man's soul, like so many people, walked in darkness. Darkness covered the soul of this man, just as darkness covers the minds and souls of men and women all around us. And for some of us here, once did that for us. And light shines because this is what God does. He does this in the original creation. He says, let there be light and there is light. He does this in the new creation. As he breaks into people's lives and he says, let there be light. Here's how Paul puts the pieces together. He says this new creation thing that God is doing is on a par with what God did in the original creation. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul saw Jesus' glory on the road to Damascus every bit as much as Isaiah the prophet, as Jesus said in John's Gospel, saw Jesus' glory in the temple. It's a light, the glory light. Secondly, it's a light. You notice where it comes from. We're told it came from heaven. Chapter 9.3, a light from heaven. Chapter 22.6, from heaven a very bright light flashed all around me. Chapter 26, verse 13, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me. We ask ourselves, why does this light, why are we told this light shines from heaven? And again throughout Luke Acts, we find this reference to heaven very important because in, in, especially in the book of Acts, Heaven represents Jesus' inaugurated reign. Jesus reigns now from heaven. Jesus has not only been raised from the dead, he has ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of God. He is in the place of all power. All power is his. And from heaven, Jesus reigns. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. When it says the light shone from heaven, the glory light, when we discover later it's the light 
of Jesus Christ that shines all around him, we're being reminded that Jesus presently is reigning from heaven. All language that's used here echoes Daniel, for example, when he sees one like the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven, who comes to the Ancient of Days, who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this has already been spelled out by, by Luke as he records the speech of Peter on the day of Pentecost. God has exalted him to his right hand. And Paul was there, heard the testimony of Stephen as Stephen is being stoned by his enemies and Stephen sees the heavens open. The heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Because in the New Testament, especially here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to His exaltation and His coronation and His present kingly rule over the world for the sake of the church. He is the Lord from heaven. That's why when you read Paul's writings, he often describes the relationship of the believer to the Lord Jesus like this, that already we are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has, we've been connected to Jesus in the heavenly places already, even though we're still on earth living our life out here. Our connection is to the throne, the throne where on that throne, Jesus the King reigns over the world and is governing history and the direction of history towards its final Denouement when he will put all things under his feet and everything will be his. And Jesus shall reign where'er the sons. So what is happening here? On this road to Damascus, Paul is having an encounter with the risen, glorified Son of Man. He's having an encounter with the resurrected and ascended Lord of glory. He is being confronted by not only the fact that Jesus reigns or lives, but that Jesus reigns. Already in Acts 2, we saw the resurrection and ascension of Jesus means at least two things. One, that God has put an end to his agony of death for him, overcoming bodily decay and bringing him to new life and a new creation. And secondly, the promise to David has been fulfilled to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Jesus is already enthroned. He is already reigning. He is already ensconced in that place of power and authority. He is already reigning from heaven. Jesus reigns. This hostile is confronted by the very person that he is attacking and seeking to destroy, and it changes his life. But not only a hostile confronted, a prophet called. You see, this brilliant display of the glory of God signaled something massively significant, a momentous revelation from God himself. Isaiah had been granted a vision of the glory of the Lord in the temple before being cleansed from his sin and called into service. Ezekiel had been called through a vision of God's splendor, God's radiant, overpowering glory light. But here in this case... The Lord Jesus appears to Saul in a public display of his glory. Those who are with Saul see this demonstration of light. The light surrounds them all. They saw it. They were encased in it. They became caught up in it. 
They hear the voice, but they do not see the speaker, nor do they understand the words. And all of that's important for us because it emphasizes this experience was not a matter of Paul's subjective imagination. It is a matter of public record. Those who were with him saw the light and heard the voice. What does the voice say? Notice the double vocative. Saul. Saul, says the voice from heaven. And if you know your Bible, that immediately brings to mind the call of Moses in Exodus 3. The double vocative again, Moses, Moses, Exodus 3 verse 4. Then there is the self-identification of God there in, in Exodus 3. God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then that leads to a commission of Moses to go and to go back to Egypt and to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt into their liberty. Well, there's an almost direct rerun here. Here you have Jesus calling Saul, Saul. Then you have Jesus introducing himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then thirdly, there is a call to service. The calling of Saul is similar to this calling of Moses. And what is... What is the self-identification that this Lord gives to this man? Who are you, Lord, he says. And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's problem was not with the second table of the law. The second table of the law deals with murder and theft and all that stuff. That wasn't Saul's problem. Paul had, Saul had absolutely no problem with his, with his meticulous observance of the law of God at the level of his personal morality or his personal life. But at that moment he realized that by resisting Jesus, he was resisting God. He realized at that moment that he was breaking the first table of the law. He, his offenses were not offenses simply against the, the second table, his love of neighbor. His offenses were of the first order. They were offenses against God. You see, let me say this to you if you're not a believer. You may very well congratulate yourself that you're a moral, upstanding, nice person and feel that Christianity is always condemning you for, people for their immorality and all the rest of it. Look, put that to one side for a moment. What I want to say to you is this, that that if your problem is disbelief, if your problem is rejection of Jesus as God and as Savior, that actually that is far more significant than any of that other stuff. That is far more serious than any of the other stuff. This is the one thing that cannot be pardoned. This view of Jesus, this rejection of Jesus, this is the unpardonable sin. You cannot reject Him and keep all of the second table of the law and be saved. You cannot do that. This is crucial. This man suddenly realizes. I mean, if Isaiah, when he was in the temple, realized that he had offended God by his speech, and he is torn apart, coming apart, coming undone, as he stands in the presence of a holy God, because his mouth was unclean, this man, this man has more to be afraid of, more to be concerned of. If Moses had reason to be afraid when he stood at that burning bush and realized his 
unworthiness. This man has more to be afraid of as he stands in the presence of Jesus and realizes that by blaspheming Christians, he was blaspheming God. Listen to his own testimony. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength for this Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful. Formerly I blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him. But what was he doing? He was blaspheming and persecuting and insulting Christians. But he learned that day that when he touched the believer, he touched the believer's Lord. Why are you persecuting me? There on that road he learned his doctrine of union with Christ. He learned to understand that the believer is so connected to his Lord that when the church is persecuted, it is the Lord who is persecuted. That people's hatred of the church is hatred of the Lord. Their hatred of the people of God actually betrays their hatred of God Himself. That's the real issue. That's the real issue. And if you think about it, that's the only explanation that you can come up with. Well, Jesus had told his disciples that he would identify so closely with them that anyone who rejected him would reject, rejected them would reject him. So Saul has this experience. He is utterly overwhelmed by it. He is left blinded by the light. And for three days he's left to stew. He's left in the darkness to consider the implications of what is going to happen to him. In one of his later accounts, in chapter 26, he tells us a bit more about the words from the Lord. Rise and stand on your feet. The Lord says, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to the things which you have seen and to those in which I will appear in the future to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There in the Damascus Road, Saul is confronted by the power of the gospel. Expecting condemnation, he is offered pardon. Expecting instant judgment, he is offered mercy. He sees the grace of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God in sparing his life. A prophet is called. He's called to be a witness to the resurrection. He's called to share in his Lord's suffering. And in one moment, God has put in his mouth the message that he must speak. But then the last aspect of the story is that here in this story, we have a brother comforted. <clears throat> I said that for three days Saul is left literally in the dark, blinded by the splendor of the glory of God, left to ponder all that has happened to him, and to sit it out in a little apartment in the street that is still to this day called Straight in Damascus. We find ourselves transported to Damascus itself in the story. And we, we're introduced to another hitherto unknown Christian leader named Ananias. Now, he's a remarkable man. He's an extraordinary disciple, devout and full of the Holy Spirit. 
And you can imagine the scenario here. Here, here he is. He knows about this Saul who's coming. He knows Saul's reputation. He knows that he's been going from house to house and dragging women and children out and arresting them for the Jewish authorities. He knows he's coming to visit his city. He's heard that he has arrived with his retinue in the city. He hasn't heard the story of what happened on the way to Damascus. And the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to go around and visit Saul. <laughs> well, I think Ananias responded in a way that probably you and I might respond. It's very interesting, actually. We do this, don't we? I'm, I can't read Ananias' response without realizing that we do this all the time. He starts to talk, he starts to, talk to the Lord, and this is what he says, Lord, I've heard, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Uh, just in case nobody had told you, Lord. <laughs> yeah. They thought I'd fill in some of the details there. You know, you just might have got the, the big message and not really got the, the, the full picture. I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? We think God doesn't know, so we've got to inform him. Especially in the olden days when we used to have great public gatherings for prayer, there was always somebody, there was always somebody who felt they had to tell the Lord the details of everybody's, everybody's ailments down to the most minute detail <clears throat> in great embarrassing precision, just in case the Lord didn't know what the problem was and then offered some suggestions as to what the Lord would do. We had somebody like that in the church that I grew up in, lovely guy. He went to sleep during his prayer. Well, the Lord is very gracious, very sweet to him, gives him many reassurances. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What was God saying to Ananias? He was saying this Saul is going to be an instrument. He's going to be a vessel. He's going to be a a clay jar filled with the inestimable treasure of the gospel. You're going to use him. The way you pick up a tool and use it. The way you pick up something in the kitchen and use it. He's going to be an instrument in my hands. I'm going to give him good news. The good news of Jesus and his love. And in the chapters that follow, everything Jesus says here is going to be fulfilled. Paul's going to face those assassination plots, the verbal slanders, the attempted stoning, the beatings, the imprisonments, the shipwreck, all for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's a very striking thing, I think, that in order to convert Saul, the Lord Jesus personally appears to him on the road to Damascus and in a direct way confronts him with himself but for the purpose of his formal reception into the company of his people, the same Lord Jesus uses an instrument. He uses someone else. He uses another believer. It's often the way he works, you know. How does the Lord move into your life? He, he often brings someone into your life, someone alongside you. And that person becomes an extension of the Lord Jesus to you. They say the words Jesus would say if he was there. They say the words to you. You hear from them what, what you need to hear from the Lord Jesus. Their friendship, their company, their companionship, their words become a means of grace. And so for the purpose of his formal reception, 
Ananias is reassured that Saul has already seen a vision. A man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Now, the reason for this human agent was that Saul had to be given an opportunity, I think, to demonstrate that his repentance and faith were real. He'd hated Jesus' people before because he'd hated Jesus before. Now he's addressed Jesus as Lord. Lord, who are you, Lord? Well, were those just words? Were those just vague sentiments? How do I know that my profession of faith in Jesus as Lord is real? One of the tests which the Bible gives me is, how do I feel about Jesus' people? You read 1 John, that's one of the tests of life. One of the real measures of whether my experience of Jesus is real is how I respond to and relate to Jesus' people. I can't love Jesus and not love Jesus' people. I can't want to have Jesus and not want to have Jesus' church. With all its faults and failings. And so Saul has to realize this connection between Jesus and the church. So Ananias departs and goes into the house and laying his hands on him, you notice the first word he says is the word brother. Brother Saul. Those are the first things that Saul hears from a fellow Christian. Apart from cries and moans and groans from persecution, he hears the word brother. You see, Saul was Ananias' brother not because they were related, nor because they shared a similar Jewish heritage. They were brothers because they had been converted. They had been justified. They had been adopted into the family. They were sons of the living God. They were part of the heavenly family, the, the royal family of heaven. They were brothers in a way that is closer than a natural brother might be. They shared, some, they shared a life that wasn't simply their life they'd inherited from their parents, natural life. They shared eternal life. They had a relationship that was going to last for billions of years. It's going to last forever. They shared faith in the same Messiah, the same Lord Jesus. And soon the demonstration that this was all real happens as the scales fall from his eyes, as he sees for the first time as a Christian man. Now let me draw this to a conclusion by saying a couple of things. Saul's Damascus Road experience is the only Damascus Road experience there's going to be. You won't have one. I won't have one. Nobody you meet will have one. We may use it as a euphemism, but nobody is going to have one of these. This is unique in the Bible. Saul is the only person to have this Damascus Road experience. This is an event that is part of the redemptive historical story of the Bible that stands alongside the calling of Moses in the Old Testament. It's unique. Saul's calling to be a significant spokesman for God and a human author of Holy Scripture is different from your experience and mine. Full stop, period, dot, the end of the sentence. I don't know what you call it here, so fill in the blank. So we're wrong, you see, to use Saul's experience as a template for religious conversion. When I was growing up in the evangelical circles I grew up in, they always wanted you to have this great conversion experience. They wanted you to be able to tell the story. And 
This was always the model. This was always a template. They talked about this. They preached on this. It was always preaching on this as a kind of model of conversion. This is the way it should look. You know, you were one thing and then now you're something else. Hey, presto. Conversion experience. It was even better if you had really been something really bad before you became a Christian. And I, I've been brought up in a Christian home, and I love the Lord Jesus. I loved, I've loved the Lord Jesus for as long as I can remember. I can remember never loving the Lord Jesus. But these people persuaded me that that wasn't enough. I had to have this conversion experience. I put my hand up at meetings. I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I did everything you were supposed to. I did it several times over just to be sure to be sure. Do you know that was so damaging? It was destructive to people. I saw it destroy some of my friends. Because they expected there to be something in it. They did this thing and nothing happened. Nothing was different. Nothing changed. Nobody said to them, look, nothing's going to change. There's nothing to change. You've always loved the Lord Jesus. Don't use Paul's experience as a template. Some people are converted suddenly. No doubt about that. I've known friends of mine to be converted suddenly, out of the blue. Some come to faith gradually. Some even come to faith reluctantly. Remember C.S. Lewis' testimony was in his autobiography about a night when his conversion came almost as an anticlimax, almost with a sigh of relief rather than a whoop of joy. He said, I gave in and admitted that God was God. Perhaps that night the most dejected convert in all Christendom. Can you imagine it? Maybe for you that's the way it'll come. God's just been worrying away at you the way a dog worries at a bone. Just worrying away at you and it's been all that early. And in a sense it will come as a relief when suddenly you just give up the fight and you surrender to his overtures. But here's what I do want to say positively. The God who converted Saul is still in the conversion business. The God who converted Saul is still in the conversion business business. God had you in view when he converted Paul, not only to give you the Bible passages that he gives you, but also to encourage you. This is how Paul puts it himself. Let me quote to you from the very end of his life. He says this, I am the foremost of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect Patience, literally, might display the whole of his long-suffering for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What Paul is saying there, Paul now, is saying that if you believe in Jesus for eternal life, or if you may yet come to believe in Jesus for eternal life, Paul's conversion is for your sake. It's to make Christ's immense long-suffering vivid for you. Paul's pre-conversion life was long, a long, long trial to the Lord Jesus. Why do you persecute me? Jesus is saying to him, why are you doing this to me? Your life of unbelief and your rebellion is a persecution of me. Even though God had set him apart from his birth to know the Son of Man, nonetheless he resisted it, he resisted it, he resisted it. His whole life was one long abuse of God, one long rejection and mockery of Jesus who loved him. But the long-suffering of Jesus, his conversion is a brilliant demonstration of that. 
And that's what he offers you this evening. He offers this to you. This is what Jesus does. He shows long-suffering to people. So we mustn't lose heart. There's somebody you're praying for. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep praying for them. God is long-suffering. He's in the conversion business. Or if you've been seeking, seeking long and hard and haven't yet found it, you feel as if it's there, it's there just before you, and whenever you reach out to it, it slips between your fingers. Don't give up. He is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. Call on Him. Call on His name. Seek the Lord. While He may be found, call on Him. While He is near, be patient. He's in the converting business. Don't give up on your dearest ones. He's in the converting business. But let me say to you personally, if you're not a Christian this evening, maybe you're one of those people and uh, you're not a seeker, but you feel as if you're being chased. You're being pursued. You've come for whatever reason into church this evening, you're listening to me on the webcast, and against your own better judgment, you're listening. You wonder, why am I doing this? It's because, like Saul, the Lord Jesus pursues. He follows after. You know those famous words of Francis Thompson in his poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears I hid from him and under running laughter, up vistaed hopes I sped, and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase, the unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. What Francis Thompson is saying is describing the futility of a flight from the hound of heaven. He will not go away. He will not go away. He will follow you. He will follow you where you are. He'll go with you. And in moments of silence, he will slip through. And when you turn from the path for fear of meeting him, you'll find him at the end of the lane there waiting for you, even as he was waiting for Saul of Tarsus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you pursue people like Saul, our brother. We almost hesitate to call him that. We've learned of him as the great teacher of the church, the great prophet and apostle of our Lord Jesus, witness to the resurrection, who's fed our souls so often. But this evening we want to think of him as Ananias learned to think of him when he went to see that man who'd once been a persecutor of the church of God and called him simply Brother Saul. Thank you that when we meet him in glory, we'll be able to thank him for the encouragement that his testimony gives to your long-suffering with us. Be patient with us, we pray, and help us to be persevering in prayer. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.